What is up and welcome back to 24 Minutes of the Oscars, the podcast that takes a look at the 2024 Oscars 24 minutes at a time. I'm Ethan Simi. And I'm Ben Lahorn. This week on the pod, we're exploring Martin Scorsese's latest masterpiece, question mark, about one of the greatest historical tragedies in America, Killers of the Flower Moon. When oil is discovered in 1920s Oklahoma under Osage Nation land, the Osage people are murdered one by one until the FBI steps in to unravel the mystery. Now we are in best picture number three. We're almost out of the guessing woods. We just have mm-hmm. one more week to go until we get our Oscar nominations on January 23rd. We figured, of course, that Barbie and Oppenheimer were a very smart and safe place to start. Uh, yeah. Killers of the Flower Moon. I feel equally as safe, equally as sure in the best picture race here. Uh, So I feel pretty good about that. And of course, um, as we do with all of these 10 best picture nominees, we have a wonderful guest joining us to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon. Writer, director Mark Sira, also known as The Third House on TikTok, is joining us to uh, talk about this movie. Mark, welcome to the show. How's it going, man? Hey, thanks for having me, Ethan. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate the invite. Stoked to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon. This is gonna be a good conversation. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, this is this is gonna be exciting. Um, I was telling you briefly off uh off air before we started recording that when we were talking about covering Killers of the Flower Moon on this pod, uh, you were the the first and the only person that came to my mind. So I'm glad that you said yes and didn't make me dive deep into <laughs> trying to find somebody else to come on this show. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the go-to killers, man. Yeah. Yep. You're the go-to guy. Um, <laughs> I mean, so Mark, I mean, I'm a every huge, yeah, every uh, episode that we do about the Oscars, uh, we like to ask our guests what their relationship is to the Academy Awards, to the Oscars. Have you been watching for a long mm. time? Are you new to the award show? Do you care deeply, or is it something that um, is made up to you? Where do you fit in the Oscars puzzle? Well, everything is made up, kind of. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I think I I've always, you know, when I was young. My family watched it. We watched it. It was kind of a ritual, you know? And then in my teens, you know, I started like subscribing to like, man, screw this. These industry shills just trying to like capitalize. <laughs> I was like, man, screw the man. I'm boycotting the the Oscars, you know? And then <laughs> in my 20s, I, as an artist that worked and had to make a living, I was like, you know, it's kind of cool. They honor artists because, you know, athletes get honored. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Other people in their field get honored. It's kind of a nice ritual. And now I've come kind of full circle where I'm like, you know what? We should have two Oscars <laughs> every yeah. year. This should, this should just be one. No, but I, I like it for what it is, which is a ritual. Like obviously it's commercialized to hell. Obviously it's a big marketing push for the studios, but Hey, I think they kind of need that now because a lot of people aren't mm-hmm. going out to see big prestige cinema anymore. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Ben, two Oscars. Should we, should we vote or like, should we campaign for this to happen? Yeah, I mean, either two Oscars <laughs> or give me the six-hour Oscars. You know, like right. let's do let's do everything. I'm, I'm I'm down either way. I'm super game for that, honestly. Uh, as as long as we're showing clips, that's all that matters to me. I just yeah. I just want the clips. Uh, are you pro clips, Mark? I like the clips. I mean, I I I like the whole thing, even the crappy stuff. I'm like, I embrace it now because <laughs> like I I look forward to it. But also, I just noticed like, and, and I, I was joking about two Oscars, but when I think about it, I'm like. We get all the best films kind of like pushed down the pipeline to like September to December, mm-hmm. and that's it. And then the rest of the year is kind of dry. If we had an Oscars in like 
I don't know, <laughs> October. It'd be like <laughs> you'd have like some more prestige stuff coming out in April, May. I don't know. Yeah, it'd be sweet. I, but I also mean, it, you know, it would lose its cachet, you know. <laughs> yeah it's true it's true i mean you do you related to to the sports aspect a little bit of like you know kind of honoring athletes and and things like that like spring fall season of of movies i'm not opposed i think that would be kind of innovative honestly if you maybe try it out but then there's so many awards now that it's like you know there's so many different people are just giving awards for anything so i don't know i feel like i'm surprised the oscars still have the apex of of awardship you know what i mean like they're still talking. I agree. I agree. Yeah, that's true. We go to some of these movies and you look at like their awards list. It's like nominated <laughs> for 250 things. I'm like, Jesus Christ. You know, it's like, yeah, the Orlando Sentinel Film Festival. Like, okay. All right. Like, this is getting out of hand now. But yeah, it is nice that's to get some recognition. Lighting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that the Oscars retain, like you said, their kind of apex um, cachet mm-hmm. and their status that they have. I think I think that is um, a good thing. Uh, I'm curious because we haven't really discussed this yet. Now we're four best pictures into this. And this is this is more Oscars focused and less movie focused. And this is my last Oscars question for you, uh, Mark, mm-hmm. just because I, I always like to ask the guests something different about the Oscars, kind of just get a pulse check. Um, Kimmel is coming back for a second year in a row hosting this will be his fourth time hosting i believe wow. if i'm times. getting that right um how do you feel about jimmy kimmel coming back and maybe the 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 safety of that choice this is okay here's the issue with host for number one i grew up on billy crystal billy yeah. crystal was my man when i watched that as a kid i was like this is incredible like he just held it for the three out three plus hours he held it now it's different because I don't want to say we've lost our attention span, but again, I'm going back to the multiplicity. We need like the first half to be someone and then the second half to be someone else. Like, let's reinvent the game. Give me, maybe for the first half or the people that go to bed early, give them the Jimmy Kimmel. Second mm. half, after a certain time slot, we're getting to like more raunchy comedian that's like bringing <laughs> it up a level. But you know what, yeah. Jimmy Kimmel, he's great. I like Jimmy. I mean, you know, I feel like that's a hard job. You got to make an audience, not just an audience, an audience of the most, you know, disc- discriminating, the most, you know, top of their game in, and they're also nervous because they're like, I don't know if I'm going to win. It's yeah. the worst set ever for a comedian, I think. Mm-hmm. So it just sucks either way. I think the great recent example is Mulaney at the governor's ball. Like, I feel so like, good. I feel like half that audience probably didn't know who he was <laughs> oh, yes. and he won them yeah. over, you know, like he was a great yeah. host. I think all, yeah, he was wonderful. So I'd, I'd be stoked that to is, see him. That is one of the harder uh, sets as well. The governor's ball. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. One of I my favorites imagine. though is Norm McDonald. Norm McDonald at the governor's ball was one of my favorite, favorite sets. Oh my God. Yeah. It was just like, boom, like, get him off. <laughs> <laughs> but give me Norm for anything. Norm is the best. Yeah. He was great. Let's resurrect him. Let's resurrect him. <laughs> AI like the, uh... Norm for Oscars 2025. <laughs> oh no. Oh, There's man. our clickbait title for the pod right there. Right. Yeah, AI Norm the Oscars. Oscars? AI. <laughs> <laughs> I look, I wouldn't mind the split host. Like, I think that's kind of cool, honestly. And I think, um, there was this article at the ringer um, around this time last year that came out uh, from Daniel Joya um, and for their site and basically kind of said like, here's what we should do to the Oscars here. Here's how we make it more of the cultural centerpiece. And that kind of was an idea of like, let's do this in 
kind of two halves. Let's let's treat it like mm. a Super Bowl situation where you have this this very um, hardline halftime situation um, mm. and do things kind of sportify it a little bit, which I think would be yeah. kind of cool. Are they going to do that anytime soon? I, I heavily, heavily doubt it. Um, if they're so apprehensive even to consider a, uh, a category with, you know, um, stunts, I don't think they're going to look at changing the format of the whole show, um, you know, as a whole. So one can dream, but let's talk about Killers of the Flower Moon because that is going to be a very core part of the Academy Awards this year. Um, first, we're going to talk about the Oscars and the implications and what might happen. Then we'll get into the movie. Uh, but before we do any of that, Mark, uh, can you enlighten us with your general thoughts on Killers of the Flower Moon? So I know if you if, if you think or want it to win things or not. <laughs> I mean, I'm... Okay, so my general thought is Killers of the Flower Moon was... The best film of the year. That's that's, I th I think that was my favorite film of the year. But I'm a huge Scorsese fan. Do I think it should win the Oscar? I I think Scorsese's past that place, artist artistically. Like when I went to Cannes because I tried to go see it at Cannes at the opener opening uh, night. I, so my friend was like, "Hey, it's not even playing in competition." I'm like, "What?" I'm like, "Oh, Scorsese's like past that game where he's like, I don't yeah. want to even compete for like these things." So. And I don't want to say like, I don't want to say it's not up to snuff to win. I just think it's 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 hard because it's such an important work culturally that it's like, not, not that other Oscar Best Picture winners weren't. I mean, Ben Hurst pretty important, I guess. I don't know, saving yeah. Ryan. But but the most culturally relevant works don't often get merited by the Oscars. Mm -hmm. um, but it, the film means a lot to me, and and I feel like it would be beautiful to see Scorsese take a take a best picture home. But it would only be it's just for selfish reasons, just so I could see him on screen. It would be it would have yeah, no yeah. you know <laughs> importance otherwise. Yeah, Ben, where yeah. are you at on on Killers of the Flower Moon? I just I just wanted to say I like Mark's idea on Scorsese being over it because he's like the anti Bradley Cooper. Where he's just kind of like, exactly. eh, whatever, How it's fine. How dare you bring my boy into this conversation? Hey, you were going to bring up Maestro at some point. I had to, I had to get there first, you know. Um, he's kind of like, yeah, whatever. Um, and yeah, I totally agree with that. Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, we've talked about it before. You and I have, anyway. Ethan and him. I did the thing that I don't necessarily recommend people do. And I read the book right before I saw it mm -hmm. and that influenced my viewing of the movie. Unfortunately, um, I, you know, when we talked about it, I objectively see how well made it is, how good it is, all that stuff. I just thought with a three and a half hour runtime, we were going to dig in a little deeper on some of the other stuff in the book, which I was kind of hoping for. Um, and we just didn't get that, which was like, again, I, I also understand that. That's also, it's one of my biggest frustrations with people is like, oh, it's not as good as the book. It's like, well, this is this person's inter interpretation of the book. It's never going to be as good as the book because you get so much more time. So I acknowledge that when I'm saying this, but just to the fact that like it, it affected my viewing, unfortunately, because I was really fresh off the book. Um, but it's, it's good. Lily Gladstone on, did I a tell wonderful you, job. Man, don't read. <laughs> No <laughs> don't read. I know. I gotta <laughs> stop I reading. Doing? It's so dumb. <laughs> what am I doing? Thing you can do is read. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It was good. I remember talking about it before because I haven't seen it since the theater. So this was good to revisit. Mm -hmm. I do think I was higher on it this time than I was leaving the theater last time for sure. Um, but it's still just like 
didn't hit me in the way that I think it's hitting some people, but I, I can't objectively like acknowledge that this is a really good movie. It's really well made. It's Scorsese. Like he's not, he doesn't really make bad stuff. You know what I mean? Like I love Hugo, you know what I mean? Like he's just, he's a good director and he's going to make good stuff. So that's Mm -hmm. what I are my feelings. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm my more in the mark camp on this one. I, I had it as my third favorite movie of uh, 2023. I saw it twice in the theaters and then I revisited it uh, just a couple of days ago before this pod. And we had initially all agreed that we were going to record about a week before it came to Apple TV plus. And then when that announcement came out, we all, we were like, Okay, can we record afterwards? Because like I, we need to like for the benefit of everybody, like can revisit this this film. Uh, and I think it was really beneficial. It was still really uh, awe inspiring to 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 watch it. But I think the at home experience is fundamentally different than the theatrical experience. Um, at least for me, it was because you are diving into this three and a half hour, very deep dark. Um, artistic vision and like you don't have that religious aura that the cinema comes with where it's like your phone is off and like you're, yeah. you're in a dark, dark room and you're glued to an IMAX screen. So like that was a little bit more difficult, not to say I was less interested in it, but it, it definitely serves as a very prominent theatrical experience. Um, I love this movie. I am really excited to talk about it on um our movie draft podcast and we have a martin scorsese auction draft coming up and of course no doubt i'm sure this will get put in the conversation i'm really curious to see like what happens there i think it's a masterpiece i did put masterpiece in the notes and ben added the question mark so i just want to know where people i put that (laughs) word in there i stand by that um (laughs) i i'm very very excited to talk about and kind of and kind of break this movie down Let's talk about what we think it'll be nominated for and uh, what we think it's going to do at the Academy Awards. Because, Mark, you mentioned Scorsese's kind of over this, and and that's that's true. It it didn't compete at Cannes. Um, we're not seeing any big marketing push or play or anything from like Scorsese or Apple necessarily or Leo. Um, of course, Lily and the team are are out at you know, critics choice and all of these places uh, winning awards, which, which is no doubt part of kind of the campaign trail, but they're not doing anything overtly different um, that some other people might be doing, you know, a la Paul Giamatti going in and out. Uh, we don't see, see our boy Scorsese going to get some good grub. Um, Got him on TikTok though. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> that's true. He I don't think the that. voting body is really on TikTok. Like the Venn and, diagram and, uh, of people voting at the Oscars and people on TikTok is really small, I think. And and uh, Scorsese and DiCaprio did that letterboxed. I don't know if you guys saw this, but they did oh, a letterboxed. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. Were, that's great. And I'm, and I'm like, I'm, I kind of respect Scorsese because he's pit, he, when everyone else is going this way, he goes that way. So it's like everyone's like, how do I cater to the the elder academy? And he's like, how do I cater to a new generation that wants to mm. embrace cinema in the yeah. same way that I did when I was young? So I, that's another thing that I just think is so appealing about the the artist, you know? Yeah, yeah. he's fantastic. I agree. And I think he really cemented the kind of cultural context around like movies in 2023 um, and where directors are, are currently like finding themselves. Uh, I think he was like really the cultural, like the cultural touch point of that. And um, of course with like Miyazaki and these guys who are making movies and mm. questioning 
have I done a good enough job? Do I have enough time to tell the stories that I want to tell? How many more do I have left? All of these really big, heady questions that they themselves are tackling and, and doing it through their art, which I think is really, really incredible. Here's the list that I currently have for Killer of the Flower Moon. Now, this will be our last episode that we do um, where we have to guess this stuff. Is that right, Ben? Um, I think so. It depends on our recording schedule. I think we we might have one more, but okay. we'll see. Yeah. Okay, we might have one more. Um, here's what I've got. Best picture, of course. Best director, Martin Scorsese. Best actor, Leonardo DiCaprio, question mark. That's the big yeah. one I want to come back yeah. to here. Um, best actress, Lily Gladstone. Supporting actor, Robert De Niro. Adapted screenplay, uh, production design, cinematography, costume design, and original score. That's what I've got here. I think that's three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's double digits mm-hmm. mark oh come on do you gonna... think it'll be nominated for 10 i think it's gonna get nominated for 12 i think they're 12. gonna give best i think i think thelma schoonmaker is gonna get a best editing doc uh, uh nomination 100 she's she her, the course. editing the problem i think with a lot of editing like the editing category is like you get to see as a viewer like what was left in but you never mm-hmm. get to see what's left out so it's hard to determine like wait what did they cut out with a film that's three hours and some minutes, like yeah. Oppenheimer and Crystal Flower Moon, you have to believe those editors were like working overtime to make sure that it got <laughs> just down to that. And yeah. it's like there's no fat on the bone. And what Thelma does with uh, this editing of Killers of the Flower Moon, in my opinion, is some of her best work. It may not be as 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 um, ostentatious as as Wolf of Wall Street or or say uh, you know even The Departed, but it is mm-hmm. her some of her strongest rhythmic editing. And I think it would be insane if she wasn't uh, nominated. I agree. Yeah. That's my fault. I left that one off the list. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, apparently I don't know movies very well. I'm just like, oh, no, I'm no, not going to be nominated for film editing. No one remembers editing. No one remembers editing. They have to get edited out. <laughs> that's, yeah, there you that's go. That's true. <laughs> um, okay. Do Ben, do you think it'll get nominated for all of these? I think my, obviously my main question is around Leo here. Cause we haven't really talked about mm. Leo being in the conversation for best actor. Yeah, I mean, I could see all these nominations happening, but I think for me, it is it's both the actors, it's Leo and De Niro. I'm curious; um, those would be the two I I don't know about, but I just mm-hmm. really hope original score makes it for sure because this also being Robbie Robertson's last score, mm-hmm. it's beautiful throughout right. the whole movie. So I just I hope it gets recognized. I don't know if it's gonna win, but I just I want it to get nominated at least. Definitely agree with that. It has to, but it will not win. There's yeah. no way, because the Oscars historically never give post like posthumous uh, yeah. Oscars. I think the last yeah. time for a score was Beauty and the Beast in '91, but um, and that was because I forget the the uh, composer's name, but he had died of HIV. They're not going to mm-hmm. give it to Robbie because Robbie, he didn't play the game as much as the other guys did. Um, yeah, and women. Makes so. sense. But that is That's, one of my favorite score. I mean, it's a great score. And Robbie's just a legend. So rest in peace, Robbie Robertson. Yeah, definitely agree. Uh, I watched The Last Waltz for the first time the other night, and that was like my first introduction to the band and, and Robbie Robertson wow. outside of this, this score and the other wow. scores um, he's done, which... You're insulting like, a Canadian right now. You know that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. First time listening to Ben Ethan. You're, you're a supple. You're in your 20s. Come on. <sighs> Barely in my 20s. Don't give me too much credit, Mark. That's, uh, that's a lot. Um, okay, so... It could go for double digits. I think that the interesting thing will be Leo and, and De Niro. On this latest rewatch, I feel like 
De Niro gets into that supporting role. I just don't know if mm-hmm. both of them get a nomination. Um, and of course, like Ben, you and I are very pro like John Magaro getting mm-hmm. a, a supporting actor uh, nomination. So too, like fingers crossed for that. Yeah, too minor, so it's tough. Too minor. Too minor. <laughs> not John Magaro. I, is not I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing performance. Make no mistake. It's incredible. He's an, he's a ama- He makes that third act. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. But they ain't going to give it to someone with that kind of uh, what he has like, 12 pages maybe <laughs> that's yeah. what i'm saying that that's where de niro comes in I, f- I feel like that might be the way to go and like i guess the the final act of killers of the flower moon of course we're going to talk about the film i feel like de niro is is really really on a different level and, and pretty special and like what he's Amazing. able to to kind of manipulate uh in and out of uh leo and everybody around him does it does it win anything mark do you see it going home with any academy awards at the end of the night It'll go. It'll go home with one, maybe two. I think it'll go home with Lily Gladstone, and I think it'll go home with maybe Thelma Schoonmaker. But I think they're going to give the editing to uh, Oppenheimer. I think. I think Oppenheimer's mm-hmm. going to sweep. Um, everything okay. else? Are you kidding me? No. Best original screenplay. They were they were pissed off because he had changed the screenplay. They were like <laughs> Eric Roth had written it, and then Paramount's like, we didn't agree to the screenplay, and they were like, go to Apple and see if they'll make it. And Apple's like, yeah, we'll make it. They're not going to give it. Like it just. It doesn't play by certain rules, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mark, I'm curious how how close do you think the Lily Gladstone Emma Stone race is? Do you think Lily has it in the bag? It's in the bag. It's in the bag. Okay. It's like it's like the San Francisco 49ers. So they're gonna take it this year. It's it's in the bag. <laughs> so putting my bets out there. But as a I California think, native, I, think, I like hearing that. That's good. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just it's one of those things where she swept every award ceremony up to the Oscars. I would be very surprised if they gave it to her, to Emma Stone in Lanthimos's film, Lanthimos's art house nouveau. Like it's a bit yeah. experimental. They don't do, they don't like that comedy. They don't like comedy, comedy by a woman. They especially don't like that. So I think Emma Stone is not, they gave it to her at the Golden Globes, but it's the foreign press. The foreign press, you know, you got a bit yeah. of French, you got a bit of Italians, yeah. Americans. No, they don't like comedy. Don't make me laugh. Yeah, not, not going to happen. <laughs> not happen. I think it. Killers of the Flower Moon does go twelve nominations at Critics' Choice, no wins because Emma Stone does get that win uh, for Best mm-hmm. Actress, which I I think that mm-hmm. was like. The real the the big unexpected win of the night for Critics Choice was like, oh wow, Lily was like dethroned one time and and she's been like winning whatever, you know, like Ben, like you mentioned, you know, these Orlando press awards and like all these yeah. other things right. that exist in the world. Like she's been taking that home. I agree with you, Mark. I think it's pretty much in the bag for for Lily. I don't see how it doesn't go her direction. Um Scorsese, of course, nominated at the Directors Guild Awards. Um it got seven Golden Globe nominations, and it did win Best Picture and uh, Best Actress at the New York Film Critics Circle. Uh, so, um, you know, it's 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 doing all right here and there, but like, I think as the as York. the race continues, but I don't know. Come on, it's New York. New York loves Scorsese. That's like <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. In a, it's in a bag. I think the New York Film <laughs> Critics gave him like after hours Best Picture. They're like, whatever you do, we'll, <laughs> whatever we'll you make. <laughs> yeah, home field <laughs> like advantage it's, there. Like it's yeah. home exactly. They're not. They're, you know, he's he's beloved there. Um, and also he's mm-hmm. just such a big part of the New York film scene. You know, being often programming for the New York Film Festival and friends with De Niro who runs Tribeca and whatnot. It's mm-hmm. just like they they, yeah. they give respect to him because he's he gives a lot back to them. 
I uh, I agree. I'm I see it going home with one win as well. I think I think just Lily takes that win for Killers of the Flower Moon, and I think that is kind of like the the award that the Academy is like. Okay, we recognize it. Like we didn't. It didn't go. You know didn't goose egg on on all the nominations that we might have given it and we feel good about ourselves because we we um let it win not only best actress but a pretty historic best actress in a martin scorsese movie in his late stage career like there's lots of things that they can pat themselves on the back about um about that so yeah i think it'll be interesting i i do think the best editing race is a, is a good call out here as well with uh with thelma and uh we'll kind of see how all things shake it. i think i was gonna take it <laughs> Just because of the yeah. non-linearity. Every time editing yeah. wins happen, it's always like, whoa, they changed linearity. They're like, that. no one else could have thought of that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Big brain stuff. Big brain stuff for sure. Uh, okay, you guys ready to do True Cinema and talk about Killers of the Flower Moon? Kind of walk through the movie? Hell yeah. Okay, cool. Let's do it. Um, of course, this is a three and a half hour movie. We are not making a three and a half hour pod. So we are going to be skipping over some pretty key critical parts of Killer of the Flower Moon. Um, but we're going to do our best to kind of talk about the things that mean the most to us that we feel are the most important to the film uh, and the things that we personally all really want to dig into. Um, I will say that when I put it on the other morning to watch it and you first get that introduction to the oil shooting up out of the ground. You get the slow motion. You get the introduction to that exceptionally powerful Robbie Robertson score. Um, absolute fucking chills. Like I literally, I just, uh, nobody was in my house. Nobody was watching me. I was not like filming myself or anything weird. I said out loud, I was like, what the fuck? Folks. Like, what You're, are we doing? Ethan is alone at home. <laughs> yeah. Any potential fat thieves out there? He's sitting home alone. Yeah. Come, come get me. Uh, I'll just, I'll let you steal anything. I'm so focused on my movie. I was, I had, ch I had chills. I was just like, Oh my God. Like, yeah. Oh my God. I forgot how good this introduction is. So I just wanted to put that out there. Really the first bullet point we, we have here is kind of the setup that we get between Ernest, who is Leonardo DiCaprio's character and William um, uh, King, who is Robert De Niro's character. And they're kind of their interview. What kind of mm -hmm. girls do you like? Do you like money? Um, I'm, I'm the kind of de facto sheriff. Uh, I don't want to get involved in things. Don't get caught being stupid in public with alcohol. All of these really heavy foreshadowing conversation pieces. Uh, Mark, what did you think about this introduction to our characters here? I mean, I just love the fact that it's so bold. Like Scorsese just like does not, like people go, it's a long film. Within the first three minutes, he sets up like what the film's about, <laughs> what what's going to happen, who this character, it's not like, like people that were like, I don't know, there wasn't enough tension because you didn't know what, he, of course not. He dispels of any idea of tension within the first scene between <laughs> Hale and Ernie or Ernest, sorry. And it's just like, yeah, I like money. <laughs> I like any kind of woman. I don't care who it is. And I want to, uh, you know, uh, I want to work for you. And that's, that's kind of like, it's funny because in lesser actors hands, that scene would have been, it would have been a fumble. It just would have been like, yeah. what? This is just the, but the way that hit, the way that De Niro is so matter of fact and the way that Leo is bringing his comedic kind of like twist to it. It makes it, it sets up a really interesting tone for the rest of the film, in my opinion, and sets up that relationship. So interestingly, like, wow, mm -hmm. here's a man who just, it's so transactional. Everything to De Niro's character is transactional. What can I do for you that you can do for me? 
you see these women they don't even have names they're just colors to me this, yeah. this it's just it's it's haunting and yet comedic and that is what scorsese does best mm-hmm. i don't know whether yeah. to laugh or cry it's it's terrifying <laughs> yeah you know I mean? it's you and goodfellas you only know, shoot spider it's just like i don't even know what to think right now yeah it's like what do i do it's like, i'm a good <laughs> shot i'm a good shot it's like i don't know it's just yeah, yeah, it's a fantastic intro, without a doubt. Um, I think for me, this and then the, the scene later on where we see them, you know, robbing the people. Uh, this, I, I promise not to talk about this every time, but in the book, they keep that a secret for a long time. So in the movie, when I'm there and they just like put it out in the front, mm. I was like, oh, shit. Okay, mm. so there's we're not doing the mystery of like, how is all this happening? We're now just doing, you guys are in on this from the beginning, so let's go. And I had, I just like, my brain had a hard time shifting with that. Because I was like, oh, I was, I came in here hoping for some kind of mystery thing, you know? Mm. Um, So that's, it was interesting that that was the choice that he made to do. He's like, no, let's get rid of the murder mystery aspect of it. Like, let's just tell the audience immediately what's happening here. And then we'll go from there. So such an interesting story choice. I am no one to question Scorsese and his decision-making by any means. So I, I think it, it made for an interesting story. And again, on this rewatch with that in mind, it, it played back better for me. Yeah. I think I like, yeah, go ahead. I think too. Well, to your point, Mark, like I think that in particular dispels of a lot of that um, potential mis- mysterious overtones that could deflect from this more, much more insular um, character driven uh, moral, ambiguity that we end up living with if we're instead focused on like this mystery of like, Oh, how is all this going down? Um, and that could, you know, that kind of goes into that no investigations montage that we get very briefly Mm -hmm. after this conversation Mm -hmm. that is Mm -hmm. absolutely fucking haunting and startling. Mm -hmm. And, and probably one of the more brutal Scorsese murders like in films. I know, you know, we talked about like spider and Goodfellas and obviously the introduction to Goodfellas and things like that. But that is, absolutely wild stuff um mark go ahead with with what were you gonna say i was gonna say like i like that ben is bringing in the adaptation idea because thinking about it as an adaptation it is so uh key to consider what a director does with an adaptation and what Mm -hmm. kind of material they're working with so for example uh oppenheimer i keep on bringing it up but it's like nolan gets the the book from his producer and i'm not saying a biography isn't an easy play by any means but it's like here's a guy that everyone knows because he created, as the film said, the most important thing in history. And mm-hmm. so you set up these things that are kind of already accepted by the audience. Um, same with Barbie. I mean, I know they're not considering that an adaptation, but we people people have a preconceived idea of what that story is and how yeah. it should be told or how it should be changed to, to meet contemporary audiences. Scorsese is in a place as a director and as an artist where he is saying, here's a material, that's very strong. It's a pul- is it a win the Pulitzer? Very yeah, strong. But he wants to challenge himself as an artist. He wants to say, okay, I could do that. I could make it the film that everyone expects me to make or everyone that, that read the book expected me to make. But I want to challenge myself because I'm, bo- I'm 80. I'm bored. I want to do something different. Yeah, yeah. So how do you do that? And what I love about late career directors is you get to see them work in ways that no other director either would be allowed to or would mm-hmm. even consider what you're making a whodunit into not a whodunit. Yeah, or, you know, exactly. Even Kubrick's early works, like Kubrick with Lolita. It's like you're, t- I mean, part of that was because of the sensorial board, but it's like you're stripping all of the sexuality 
that was inherent to the novel out and you're just going to make it an inch i mean a character study that's uh, i mean i don't know i love the idea of it as a as a as a perversion of the adaptation mm-hmm. yeah that's a super interesting perspective on it that yeah i don't know that i had so yeah i appreciate hearing that for sure it's it's a good challenge for him i think to be like let's take what is here and kind of turn it on its head so i can make something a little more challenging for myself I don't feel like I have really anything to add to this conversation that hasn't already been um, added. Uh, I just because I don't want to dumb it down. I think we've all said some pretty really good <laughs> things. Um, I will say the the power dynamic that we're let in on initially between mm. King and, and Ernest is is equally haunting as like what we're kind of seeing um, take place um, on screen, and the the comedy from Leo is just hysterical to me when he's like, I do like that money, sir. Like, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he, he references, teeth. yeah, he's mm-hmm. got the teeth. He's got like this kind of oily hair. He references that back. Of course, when he goes to Blackie and all of these guys, uh, and he's like, Oh, I, I almost love money more than I love my wife. And, and it's like, yeah, Oh, yeah. you, you really fucking <laughs> do like you, you weren't just putting on a show for your uncle. Like this is how you live. And yeah. that is haunting mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love this, this introduction. Uh, next one that we're going to talk about is uh, dinner at Molly's house. This is of course, after Ernest kind of starts start driving Molly around and understands from King that like, there is opportunity here. You, you, if, if you want to pursue this, this is how you do it. And this is how it can be done. Uh, and this is really the first time that we, besides the car, which is in a public setting, this is the first time we see them alone in the mm-hmm. confines of, of a home with, with nobody else watching them or being with them or influencing anything that they might say. Um, this is when Ernest kind of picks up on Molly calling him a coyote, which I think mm-hmm. is is a really interesting this kind of an enigma that I personally feel when I watch the movie of the story. And I don't know, Ben, if like the, 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 the book maybe alludes stronger one way or the other of like Molly knows, Molly knows that he likes money. Molly knows he wants the money. Mm-hmm. They all have this idea that they're coming yeah. for the money, but she, she genuinely loves him and wants to have children and wants to be with him and wants to make love to him when, when she's falling ill, like these very personal relationship choices that she makes nobody's around and she calls him out and they stick to that um and and so i find that really an interesting scene in trying to understand and start to decipher their relationship of course this famously is the scene where we got the one still from apple for like <laughs> yeah. 18 years <laughs> uh, came from this scene so a lot of power in this scene as well ben d- does the book in your opinion change anything about that elusiveness that I, I feel? I don't think so. I think it, it kind of lets you in on that. These, you know, a lot of these women understand the situation they're in and you kind of just have the pool that you have, you know, to choose mm-hmm. from. So it's just, you almost have to give in. Like, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's kind of like someone after they become famous, like at that point, it's like, do they love you for you or do they love you because you're famous, mm-hmm. but they're not going to be able to change the fact that they're rich. So they sure. can't, you can't boot someone away just because they want your money. It's like, I don't know. Everyone wants my money. Who doesn't, you know, like I'm a, I'm a millionaire, whatever. But I think it's great. Like that car scene, we kind of see some of their chemistry together. The, you know, handsome devil line is really good. And then this is great too. I, I just really enjoy the, the way she c- controls the scene of just like, let's sit here in the quiet, whatever. I think it's such a powerful scene for sure. Mm-hmm. 
Mark, yeah, what do you I think about this scene? I love that you brought up the Lizzie Q when he, she introduces her to her mother, Lizzie Q. Oh, on like this third time I saw it, I was like, wow. It's like he puts, she, she gives him that gift before they enter the house. And it's this mm. big white Stetson cowboy hat. Yeah. And, and, and you, I was like, why did he, she give him that? And I was like, oh, because she wanted the mother to know that he was well off and that she, he wasn't going in to be like a vulture and, you know, suck the family out of their money. But also in the classic Western tradition, it's like <laughs> Scorsese and de fact, like by, by approximation, uh, uh, Lily Gladstone's character, Molly, sets up the cowboy from the, or, or the idea, our idea of the cowboy entering yeah. into the, into the enemy's territory right off the get-go. It's not like, mm-hmm. again, it's, it's, it's stripping it. What I love about this film is it strips itself from the ambiguity. Here is exactly who this guy is. Here is exactly the dynamic when he walks in with that big white Stetson mm-hmm. and, and the grandmother's like, here, you keep on sleeping with these white devils. It's like these, that's mm-hmm. just, I don't know. It's just such a it's such a bold bold introduction to that de- family dynamic. I think it's great because it also calls back on the old TV western tropes of like the good cowboy in the white hat, bad cowboy in the black hat, exactly. and it's like presenting you know forward presenting. It's like no, this is a good guy, you know. But as the audience, we kind of are in on a little bit more. Yeah. I also wanted to use this scene, um, Ben, when we did our first episode of our movie draft podcast, we did 2023 movies and um, you called out my bluff and you uh, figured out that I was going to try and nominate Killer to the Flower Moon in the comedy category. Uh-huh. This was the scene I was going to um, use as my evidence. Um, I think when when Molly does ask Ernest to basically sit still, like we have to respect this storm and the power that it brings and how mm. he's like, well, this, this is good for the crops. And she's like, just <laughs> yeah. sit still. Just, Which yeah, I think exactly. is such a nuanced and deep, like, one-two exchange of, like, what that means for each character. But I think it's Good absolutely time. fucking hilarious that he he just is like, oh, it's good for the crops. It's like, <laughs> dude, you're killing me. <laughs> yeah. I just I just think it's so funny. Um, okay, next one. Also, also, whiskey also, too. Sorry, I, 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 but I even asked him, I love that scene because it's just such, such again, it could be read as Scorsese, if we looked at Ernest as the audience and Scorsese as, Lily, as a cipher for Lily Gladstone's character, not, not no offense to Barbie or, or Oppenheimer, they're great films, but they're like this. They're like, tick, 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 tick. like Oppenheimer's brilliant because it just hold, it grabs you by the collar and let, doesn't let go. And that's its beauty, but it's also a different style of filmmaking. Scorsese is asking within the first 20 minutes, hey, just be patient, be quiet, mm-hmm. just sit here and understand that it's not going to be like Goodfellas where everything's going. And I just love again. He he's presenting his cards. He's saying this is what this film's going to be. Yeah. And yeah, I just, I think that too. It just it just speaks to the 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 power in the. I think among his riskiest movies he's ever made. Of course, we're going to talk about kind of this coda and the epilogue we get at the very end. Um, but I think um, you know the the more you think about it in those terms, you can kind of understand like it is really it is really something special from Scorsese uh next on the list I have Molly and Ernest's wedding uh I wanted to put this on here because I think it's mm. quite a quite a beautiful scene like costume production design setting score yeah. like it, it all comes together really really quite incredibly uh and f- for the pivotal moment of understanding that that Minnie, who is Molly's sister, has um, the the illness, basically the sickness, and is dying, and that's when 
king parts the sea of people and and goes to her and basically yeah. is like sorry you're dying that's tough shit like let me just say an indian thing real fast over you <laughs> and let me control kind of this evil core that's sitting at at as everybody else is not too oblivious but just like enjoying themselves around because it hasn't hit them yet it hasn't gotten to them and hasn't spread quite to them yet um which is really quite a haunting scene from uh de niro any thoughts on on the the wedding scene mark i just love the way he shoots it i love the way that they're dancing it kind of like the way he's using i think he only uses zoom lenses once in a while and it's in the scene where they're dancing and it kind of looks like a, a, a rob altman film for a brief <laughs> moment and it's got yeah. i think uncle tupelo is playing and you're like wow it's it's kind of a beautiful moment to see indigenous and and european settlers kind of like actually work like that's what i love about this film it shows moments where it's like wow this is working if even briefly mm -hmm. and in the most yeah. obviously like disturbing ways possible yeah uh, I, don't know I mean I, love... I, I can't tell if he's faking it or not sorry to interrupt i don't know if these I, I think he might actually be speaking osage and i think he might be actually ah. like i don't know I can never tell with Hale. I'm like, I, I, he <laughs> you don't took, know where he's at. He went, yeah. so, like, he went so far to learn the language. I don't know. True. But I guess that doesn't mean much. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think it's super interesting. I think it allows him to either keep up this facade, you know, because again, like how we meet him and then like the way he treats the neighborhood, everyone loves him. Like they think he's just the best thing ever. Um, but then knowing what he's behind, it's just, it's kind of crazy. As far as the wedding itself, uh, the costuming I loved, especially with my, Molly and her sisters. I think their their outfits are wonderful. Those like big mm -hmm. hats and stuff like right. that. Like I just loved it. So that that was probably my favorite part of this. Yeah, really, really good stuff. Uh, next one here on the list is Ernest's uh, hazing ritual in the um, Masonic Lodge. This is where we understand that uh, Hale is. One thirty second, uh, Mason, and I think he he mentions um, and this is this is frightening. This is a dark, dark scene. Mark, you put this on our list to ensure that we talked about it. Uh, do you want to do you want to talk about it for a second? Well, there's a big thing in all of Scorsese's work where he's either admonishing certain religious sects, uh, mm -hmm. and I don't mean sex, I mean sect, or. Mm -hmm he's admonishing brotherhoods. So like the Irishman, right? The Irishman is all about, well, how, you want to stay loyal to a brother that's going to betray you? Right. These are brothers. Like, yeah, you can have a brotherhood, but they can be often uh, duplicitous and manipulative. And Scorsese time and time again, despite him being, I think, a very religious and spiritual director and artist, is always holding these groups under a very sharp lens. Mm. And masonry is no i mean even the ring and the irishman very masonic mm -hmm. right that that whole exchange um i don't know if people if listeners know this but the premiere of the irishman was in the masonic lodge in london oh interesting. um and wow. so and, and so uh scorsese is often i think he's not it's not black and white it's not which is funny because the floors of all masonic lodges are black and white i don't know if you guys know that they're all tiled black mm -hmm. and white kind of like mm -hmm. a chessboard um, but the scene is funny because in some ways it shows you the departure of religious beliefs within that community. You see the animistic, natural beliefs and, and culture that exists in the Osage. And then you see 
the dark artificial lighting with the art deco, deco light lighting fixtures mm-hmm. and the ominous secretiveness of that brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have to say a damn thing. You understand the juxtaposition between modern European enlightenment and the indigenous, let's say, ancient beliefs and rituals. And then just the slap on the ass is just hilarious. And honestly, one of the, <laughs> I think one of the funniest scenes in <laughs> in the film. I mean, yeah. Hale just goes to town on him. And he uses, again, he uses the religiosity to, to, to punish yeah. this kid. Like, that's so, it's just, it's like, I don't know, it's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I, ben, I, what did I, you think? I don't know that I have much to add that it would be of any benefit <laughs> uh, for what Mark said. But yeah, it's just, it's a very interesting scene that kind of, I think, reiterates the bond that they have underneath of like what's going on here that they're all kind of tied together and i think i don't know i feel i mean maybe it's in response to Ernest getting obviously a lot closer with molly they just kind of want to like keep him in check so i, I don't know i think it's a great scene though yeah it again speaks to that um power dynamic that that hail needs to keep over certain aspects and areas mm-hmm. of his life with Ernest being being a huge one a uh, huge member of that um and yeah, it's 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 pretty intense, and I I feel like that is if you hadn't got the idea already, obviously because Scorsese is like you say, Mark, like kind of stripping away all of these um, things. This is the moment where you feel um, that like okay, cool this this is this is Scorsese doing doing the things that are that are most interesting to him and and near and dear in terms of like these heavy religious themes um mm-hmm. and kind of figuring out how to how to play with those and how to put them on the screen um next on the list is uh Tolly Redcorn's moving speech this takes place basically um when these murders start to happen and uh they they start to kind of wise up essentially to what is going on and figure, okay, we, we need to send somebody to DC. We need to figure out, we need to figure out how we can get some, get some help. Essentially the, the County won't help us. The state won't help us. Uh, Of of course, um, King is at this meeting and so staunchly offers to add a thousand dollars to the reward (laughs) money for anybody that knows anything about, uh, Minnie's, Minnie's death. And, um, really fucking frightening stuff from his character, really powerful speech, really moving, authentic filmmaking here that, that, that feels really, really deep and intertwined with what we're, you know, obviously tackling in the film as a whole. Uh, ben, what did you think of this moment? I mean, it's super powerful moment in the film. Um, one of the most, if not, you know, the most, but I, to talk about the King moment, I love how he very specifically says, so if you have information, come directly come to, to me. me. Yeah. He's like, don't go anywhere else. Just come to me. And it's like, oh, that's a smart move, man. Like, I'll give you a thousand bucks, but, you know, I'm going to get that thousand bucks back for sure. Uh, yeah. Super powerful scene and just shows how intertwined they are in that community there, that they have the trust to be in there with them. Um, so, yeah, I love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's one of the best scenes of the film for me. I I, I had it. Uh, not an argument, but I had a discussion with someone saying, oh, come on, Kelly's wasn't that emotional. I'm like, dude, I, mm-hmm. I cried. When, when, when he, when Larry Sellers character uh, says that speech, I cried. I was like, wow, this is like, I, you're never, you're never going to see something like that. I don't think from any other director on any scale this yeah. year or, or any other year, it's just so, so much mm-hmm. heartbreak in that one monologue. 
Yeah, and then it's, Hale just it's... breaks the breaks it just like, <laughs> just like being a complete asshole. Yeah. Again, he's just so great. I, I I fucking love that Scorsese's pushing these two ideas constantly up against each other. Every mm-hmm. scene, it's mm-hmm. you get the Osage rituals, and then you get the Masonic rituals. Then you get the conf- beautiful confession of like, I feel pain for our children's children about this. Then you get William Hale. And he's just like, I'll give you 10,000. <laughs> it's like, it, it's, it shouldn't work. And yet it does. This is what's so weird about the film. Yeah. And of course, obviously, you know, the, the, their uh, physical presence with one another and in this situation specifically um, being kind of in this, in this hut, in this enclosement um, that puts them really physically near each other to to tackle this and i think from like king's perspective really to show how deep his facade goes of like how well he can hold it together and how well he can um choose what shows and what doesn't and when he knows to, to speak and when not to um and when to like you said ben when to be like just come to me if you got the info like just come straight to me because he has everybody there. He's got to capture, you know, captive audience, uh, yeah. which very, very, very smart. And of course, very just exceptionally heartbreaking. Like you said, Mark, on like the, and, and you know, this kind of ties into the very, very beginning, the, the first kind of burial that we see um, mm. is that idea of like, our kids will not know our language. They will know the ways of the white people. They will not know the Osage ways. And this is what we're, we're burying. This is what we're burning off. And and this is what the future looks like. So that, that, that huge, huge juxtaposition against these two massive, like differing cultures and, and ideas and themes is, is crazy. Um, of course, lots of things transpire basically between this and, and, and really the next thing that we're going to talk about, you know, Molly has uh, diabetes. She starts to take penicillin. Um, really, one of insulin. five insulin. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry, insulin. Um, one of five people that can be afforded this opportunity that comes at the behest of of King and his um, monetary values and his ability to afford it. Get the introduction to the doctors. Lots of things take place. The one that we're gonna call out here is is Ernest's uh, kind of hellscape scene where he does take the medicine mm. that he's been giving to Molly. They have their kind of blow up. He calls her. Um, I mean, really the first time that we see him uh, verbally assault her and call her a bitch and start to break this down of like what this, this duality of life that he's trying to live and figure out where he lies. Um, and of course he puts the rest of the vial in his own drink and, and drinks that. Um, Mark, what did you think about this, this scene as a whole? Again, just, you know, full disclosure, I am type 1 diabetic. I do take insulin. Mm. So this whole storyline hit me hard. Like, that was such a, just talk about evil. Like, the thing that should be, if someone did that to me, the thing that should be helping me get me through my day ends mm. up being poison, ends up being I what I think would be an opiate or so, of some sort. It's, it's, it's pure evil. Now, does Ernest understand what he's doing? I don't know. I mm. actually don't know. Um, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt because he does seem, no offense, like legally, mentally challenged. Um, but I don't know. And that scene where he's kind of sees his own hell that he's created, it's one of I think Scorsese's best works. I mean, it's it's you have the beautiful, I think it's blind Willie Johnson playing. Really, again, Scorsese knows how to use minimal strokes of genius. 
American tradition, the folk blues tradition, with the indigenous American tragedy that is the slow and non-consensual, basically, destruction of these people, and mixed with this kind of European hellscape, which is out of like a John Mills painting. It's out of like a British painting. It's just intersecting these things again that shouldn't work together. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be able to play a John, you know, a, a, a blues song next to a woman dying in her in her bed, <laughs> next to a guy drinking opium, and yeah. be like, "Oh yeah, that's totally normal." That's a, no, that's a surreal. That's the most surreal scene of the year for me. And mm-hmm. I saw a dream scenario. I saw, you know, there's a yeah. bunch of films that that would match that, but it's subtle. It's the way Scorsese does surrealism in a subtle way that really appeals to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is a fantastic scene. This is so interesting to me because if, I mean, we've met the doctors before, but um, they play mm-hmm. such a big part, you know, in the, in the adaptation with the book. And so it was kind of cool they? to see them. Really? Yeah. It's really interesting how involved they were in everything. Are they, so they're complete, fully complicit in the book. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're like fully mm. in on it, um, which I feel again as something that maybe I could have used more of, you know, in the movie here. But I think it still works in the movie. I think it still works fine. But um, yeah, this is just a, a strong scene here. Great stuff from Leo, but just that that inner turmoil of like, what exactly am I doing? Because like you said, Mark, like I don't know how intelligent, how smart this dude is and how much he's like Mm -hmm. aware fully of what, what it is he's doing right now. Yeah. And, and I just want to call out right before, uh, or or a little bit before this scene happens is where we kind of get this introduction to like the, the, the subplot of what's going on with, with Henry and King, Mm -hmm. um, and Henry going to see these doctors and basically saying he's got melancholy and, and so, just so confidently mm-hmm. the doctors to King basically like, Oh, what are you going to do? What are you going to shoot him? And then the guy, one of the doctors like makes a finger gun and the sound is like, Phew! and it's like, this is so fucking dark. So that you get that scene that, that leads into, of course, eventually, you know, this, this kind of murder gone wrong that ends up on Ernest's hands, blood in, in blood on his hands um, and King's hands and, and, really kind of takes off into the third act. So I think that's worth mentioning as well that, that we get the kind of introduction to this character and how they do feel about the Osage people. And, you know, and melancholy isn't anything. Whiskey won't help. Like just, just mm-hmm. go, go get some whiskey. Even if your wife is cheating on you, like just, I don't know, go yeah, drink some whiskey seriously. is basically what they say. Um, and King making sure that he can insure him uh, so he can get his money. Very interesting crazy crazy things going on there um okay next one on the list i have is uh lizzie dying and going to the beyond the reason i wanted to put this here on the list is because Mm. i think this is the only moment in the film that we see a an osage member in a truly elative state of of like joy of of true pure happiness um and that's haunting in and of itself because she has left those that she loves the most. She has left her daughters and her family and her native land and her home and is now in the beyond with her ancestors. And that's where she feels at home now. And that's where she feels at peace. So this um, kind of big crossover point 
that we're getting of like, okay, it, it, it is not good here anymore for the, for these people, no matter if they do, uh, you know, put on these parties and, and be happy. Uh, this is what, what Lizzie ended up feeling. Um, and the introduction to, to the idea of the owl as well, which I think is, yeah. is really mm-hmm. done quite well here. Uh, what did you think of, of Lizzie's dying scene, Mark? I mean, again, I'm a, I'm a softie. I, again, I cried when I saw that. I was like, this is, yeah. this is such an emotion. And again, it goes back to how Scorsese uses sound. You know, you don't make a film called Silence unless you know and understand how sound works. I yeah. think it's kind of telling that the only moments where there's a lot of silence is the moment when Ernest and Molly first fall in love. And I'm using quotation marks for people that are <laughs> listening. And the moment when Lizzie Q dies quotation marks again because it's like so love and death these are these moments that scorsese is trying to frame without sound he's trying to shake like this is <laughs> i'm trying to like it's kind of like the uh, you know an oppenheimer when he first understands quantum physics he sees those things yeah make, uh, no one created these amazing visual effects to kind of like visualize the quantum realm and i was like this is amazing this is his version of that it's like hey this is what i'm trying to express to you these things, these ideas of love and death, they mean totally different things to to, to different people. And when Lizzie Q dies, I love the just the cut to back to the living and they're just yes. crying. It's just yeah. that juxtaposition between peace and pain that, again, I'm just, wow. It's it's moving, it's so moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was the big takeaway for me. I mean, and you just said it more eloquently than I could have, but the hard cut we get to go back to the real world. Yeah. You know, and just how everyone is reacting while Lizzie herself is like finally found some peace and she's walking off in a, such a beautiful shot, beautiful scene. And then like, yeah, we just like smash cut back to reality. Like all these people, it's just like, like you said, it's the peace versus pain. It's, it's so well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, just really devastating scene. Yeah, I absolutely agree on the, on the sound front. Uh, it's, it's, it's really fun to watch fun is the, the, the not the right word but it's very fun and appealing to like watch that happen and to be and to, and to mm-hmm. notice that and to to hear that silence and that lack of sound that is so prominent at other points of the film uh we just have a few bullet points more that we're going to cover um Jesse Plemons's introduction really as as the uh the FBI as as Tom White um of course Probably the most, you know, memeified moment of this film. Like, you know, I've come to see who's 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 making them, who's doing these murders, which I think is fucking hysterical as well. Uh, and this is where it feels like Ernest is starting to unravel quite a lot. Is is when uh, Tom shows up and. Uh, Basically, it's like, what well, my, my wife's sleeping right now. Like, I, I, I don't know what you want me to do. You got to come back later. Like, he just kind of scrambles, uh, which is which is kind of funny. And Plemons' character, I think, of course, cast, I think, exceptionally well in this movie. Very ominous presence of, of, of like, foreboding of where his grasp is going to go and how how his hands can get over everything. Um <laughs> And I, yeah, I, I love this scene and of course kind of kicks us into like the back hour and a half ish, like back hour of the movie and, and kind of changes the narrative to, to now, how do we deal with these people that have come in here? Um, Ben, you're, I know you're pro Jesse Plemons. Who isn't? Yeah. <laughs> Thank God. Okay. Yeah. We got to have him on there. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was great to see him. Obviously that's a wonderful scene. This is the other part for me though. That was like the hardest in 
the comparing the two is like, we got a lot of great stuff about, cause this is like the creation of the mm. FBI. Like, I think it's yeah. kind of like the subtitle of the book is kill us to the thought of I me mean, like, and like the murder of those six people and the creation of the FBI. And I really wanted to see more about that. And I, I guess I just saw the three and a half hours. Cool. We're covering everything, you know? And it just like, it felt kind of glossed over here, but still well done. Interesting to see how they like kind of work their way into all these groups and these factions, which is kind of cool to see. But um, yeah, I'm always, I'm always here for Plemons. Yeah. He's good. Yeah. I mean, he's great in the Irishman as well. Of course, obviously him and Scorsese are, I'm I'm glad that Scorsese kind of picked him up under his wing. Uh, Mark, what did you think about this scene? I like that there's always an obligatory Leo gets caught scene in all of the Scorsese films. <laughs> or like, as a talk, like Kyle, Kyle Chandler in Wolf of Wall Street where they're like, he's got the, uh, whatever, the, the mm-hmm. warrant for his arrest. And then in The Aviator, Alec Baldwin is kind of at the door when he's like, full power to use. He's got to have always a scene where someone's talking through a door. Um, and this scene it. is one of the best. And it's also, I think, a tip of the hat to um, a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where uh, Brad Pitt's character uh, talks to... Oh, I forget her name. She's part of the, the uh, Spawn Ranch. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that, yeah, that Margaret Qualley. Yeah. Oh yeah, through L. Fanning, uh, right? Uh, when Lena Lena Dunham's oh, right. character. Oh, remember, yeah. he shows up and he's like the cowboy that's going to go to Spawn Ranch and and figure out what these hippies are doing. And he and Scorsese and also Scorsese, sorry, Tantino sets up this beautiful kind of like silhouette of Brad Pitt through the screen door. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's Jesse Plemons in 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 uh, <laughs> Flower Moon. And they have the same. It's the same idea. It's this cowboy that comes into the ranch and tries to save these people but again what are they saving or who are they saving and that's yeah. a, that's a constant theme in scorsese's work like tack going back to taxi driver right like yeah. de niro mm-hmm. thinking that travis bickle thinking he's the he's the savior and he's going to come in and help people and not that his care not that jesse Plemons doesn't do that to some extent of course he does because that is the cre- creation of the fbi but you know, the FBI isn't without their own flaws too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is true. Um, I just, I just love, I love the energy that Plemons brings to this movie. Um, and you yes. know, I'm, I'm, I am in a very perverse, like 21st century movie consumer way. Um, I'm glad that there was a moment that, that got memed. Like, I'm glad that the yeah. culture caught on <laughs> and everybody saw that picture and Everybody knew that was Plemons and like they knew that what that scene was about. Like, I feel like that was beneficial in this case. Um, I, I, I think that was cool. Um, okay. Next one on the list here is uh, Pitts, Beaties. Uh, you're pronouncing yourself too much after the explosion. Of course, we get a big lead up of, of uh, Ernest and King trying to figure out how do we, how do we blow up and take down, um, Anna and Bill, I believe it is. Um, and like, mm-hmm. how do we get rid of them and how do we do this? And they're, they're trying to find somebody to put dynamite in the house. And, um, you get this really <laughs> interesting, <laughs> you, you get this, this great montage of like, uh, King setting up all of these kind of fake, fake robberies and like getting people murdered, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. You get Leo trying to like convince people to do his bidding and, people being wiser than him uh, again to this point of like Ernest pro- just like, I don't think is that smart and like just doesn't know how to do this. And it doesn't know how to do the game. Uh, and then of course the, the house does blow up and then uh, Pitts Pitts Beatty comes and basically says, you're pronouncing yourself too much to King, which is really shocking moment because that, that feels like the moment where you're just like, Oh wow. They, 
they are like they, they he is he's overextended his hand here and he blew up the fucking house in the middle yeah. of the the road the night after the day after you're driving Ernest through the city and being like these are fear lights like they're scared they're trying to ward off murder and let me just fucking blow up their house anyway uh mark what did you think about this scene <laughs> Again, like twisted, like it's it's comedic in the way he says it. Like you see all this rubble and just destroyed house, and you think he'd be like, like going to the to the family, be like, "I'm so sorry." He just goes to William Hill, and he's like, "Hey, buddy, let's uh, keep quiet, <laughs> shall we?" Like, Tone it like down a little bit. <laughs> exactly. It's just such a gr- and again using the sound. Like you don't see the explosion, you hear it. Scorsese using the sound. I, I just love that. It's the opposite. I hate this. Again, I love Oppenheimer. It's the opposite of the Oppenheimer nuke scene. I think mm. if Oppenheimer was made when he was when Nolan was Scorsese's age, he wouldn't even show the explosion. Mm. He wouldn't even show it. He would just be like, you know what happened. Yeah. Um, and Scorsese just has the confidence to not give you the action. He gives you the reaction. He gives you <laughs> William Hale being like, geez, these guys really fumbled this one. It's like, mm. yeah, it's just uh, incredible, incredible filmmaking. A little too much. The aftermath of that, when everyone's going through all the rubble and stuff, and they see, is it Rita? I think that's her name. They see her lying there, then mm-hmm. pick her up, and you see the back of her head. Like, oh, it's just such oh a rough God. scene. But yeah, yeah, I think you're totally right, Mark. Like, a, a lesser director, quote unquote, would have shown us the explosion. It's like, oh, yeah, we got to spend, you know, at least 70 grand on this explosion. Like, we got to make it powerful. It's like, Scorsese's like, no, it's just like, the impact will blow up the windows. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. And then mm-hmm. that will let exactly. people know how powerful mm-hmm. this is. I'm like, Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you're right. So it is Rita. I'm sorry. I said it was Anna previously. And uh, I think that's really funny because Anna gets murdered and then Bill just remarries uh, another sister who is yeah. Rita. Uh, yeah. So there you go. Uh, so he's, saying, he's like, Oh, Rita was there for me. <laughs> and Anna's <laughs> like, it's like yeah. all right, dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, Pretty, pretty wild stuff. Of course, I, I do think it's it's exceptionally uh, smart filmmaking. Uh, this kind of begins the trial that we get and seeing Ernest and and King um, be arrested and and do this kind of flip flopping of if they're going to work with the FBI, if not, where do things stand with Molly and the Osage Nation, uh, and really kind of turning the tide of of the power and and what kind of happens. I I wanted to ask you guys. Um, what what you thought of the trial scene, but in particular, Ben, I want to start with you because this was a big debate when Killers of the Flower Moon came, first came out. Was yeah. was Brendan Fraser doing what he should have done, or was he overacting? Was he miscast? Was he doing the right thing? What was he doing? Um, ben, I, where are you at on Brendan Fraser just yelling in a courtroom? Yeah, what was he doing? I don't know. He was, he was doing a lot. He was he was bringing some energy for sure. It felt like kind of pent up energy. Uh, it was it just kind of felt out of place, I guess. You know, because so much of the rest of this had been kind of slower and you know maybe a little bit more methodic and quiet, and then suddenly we just get just slamming hands on the desk and standing up and screaming. It's like, all right, man, like it's just so jarring, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's Brendan Fraser. I don't, I'm not going to like critique him too hard, but it just kind of felt a little, a little off base, I guess. Uh huh. Mark, where are you at? Okay. So I have a theory, but this is going to be like, you got, I don't know. 
<laughs> you gotta either <laughs> be on board it. or not. But <laughs> but it's Scorsese plays all of these actors with the exception of Leo. I see with the exception of Leo and Robert De Niro with a pretty straight face. They're pretty natural. Mm-hmm. And to emphasize the idea that this is a kangaroo court, that this is a charade of a trial and justice, what does he do? Well, let's bring in Encino man. Let's bring in, yeah. let's bring in, mm-hmm. let's bring in the American, like, like this very, uh, you know, post 1950s, 60s performance. You know, I'm thinking witness mm-hmm. the prosecution or, or even um, uh, what's his name in a few good men. You can't handle Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth. Yeah. He 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 elevates the uh, let's say the caricaturish nature of this attorney Courtroom. to yep. just emphasize how fake this justice is for these people and how, in the end of the day, like Scorsese's done the the courtroom scene. It's it's he's done good Goodfellas. He's done the yeah. courtroom scene, and every yeah. time he does it, he tries to riff. He tries to play a bit on it, like. So like in the courtroom scene, you see him about to to do the confession and then he gets up and starts talking to the audience and confesses to the audience. In this one, I love that it just whole I just first of all, I love Brendan Fraser. I think he was exceptional mm-hmm. on this because he he understood the assignment, which was yeah. like go big, literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. And he was like, and he just didn't and he didn't with he didn't hold back. Um mm-hmm. and it does feel like totally out of place. That's what I like about it. It feels like I think once they get to, the FBI gets to the Osage, the whole film starts feeling fake. Yeah. On purpose. On purpose. I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think it's a mistake that the the the, the trial feels fake. I don't think it's a mistake that that last encounter between Molly and Ernest feels fake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good call. Yeah, I'm I am very pro Fraser in this movie as well. I think he's quite good. I think it's uh, to your point, Mark. I think you're exactly right because you've got John Lithgow on the other side doing the same thing, Theatrical being someone that right that doesn't fit into this film physically and and figuratively, and what is being um, displayed and the energy that is being brought. And you you get this huge tiff with both of these guys saying like, "You can't do this. This is uh, not allowed. We can't have this." And and all of this leading to basically Leo being taken down to the den of the wolves, being told they beat you and they they did things they were not supposed to do. You do not side with the government. You stick with us and with this jury and with our type and with our people. Um, and you do with not betray us with the brotherhood, much like you can reference to the Irishman, right? Like you do you do not turn your back on the brotherhood. Uh, so I think that's phenomenal stuff. I, I really, really liked it. And and on this third watch, I fell in love with it even more because of that context, because it does start to really bridge that surreal, almost fake of like, oh, this is not the same movie I was watching two and a half hours ago. We're in a different space now. We're doing mm-hmm. something differently. Totally. Um, and then of course- Even the, the, the scene to, when he, ta- sorry to interrupt, but even the scene when he talks to Molly- during the court, do you remember that scene where it's like Jesse Plemons is standing against the wall mm. and Molly mm-hmm. and, and, and Ernest have that last exchange? Love it. Here's something to do for the audience to go home and do. You can watch the scene again. Watch the scene and watch which way Molly exits the frame before Scorsese cuts to the wide shot of them. And it's just Leo sitting there alone with Jesse Plemons. The way he frames her, she exits in a way that would have been impossible for her to exit the frame, implying grammar wise, visually, you know, visual grammar wise, that she was never there. Mm, and she abandoned him way she she abandoned him way before the, the courtroom even started. 
So again, there's this whole this whole departure from reality that suggests that he's alone in the last thirty minutes of the film with his own thoughts. Yeah, and of course, what Molly says in that scene as well: "Have you told all of the truths?" That's that's pretty much all she says to him. That that's mm. the one instigating exactly. phrase. Um, there's no back and forth. There's no conversation. There's n- there's no nope. um, trying to delineate like, oh, here are the truths I told and the ones that I didn't. This is this is a question that sits with Ernest. Uh, so I, I love that idea. Uh, of course, we we end with this very impactful, important, truthfully, exceptionally ballsy move from Scorsese to bring in this epilogue of using it as a stage radio show. Scorsese himself coming, talking about Molly and and her life, King and his life. Um, got a great Jack White sighting here, uh, doing some some great <laughs> voice work. Uh, I think it's I think a very very exceptional uh, ending. And what did you think of this kind of epilogue type ending that we got? I thought it was interesting. I'm gonna like screw up the factual details of it, but they talk about in the book that the FBI back in the day did have a radio show where they would talk about yeah. cases, whatever. Mm-hmm. So. I thought in that context, it was interesting to use this as the the ending to the movie. Um, I think like all of us, it kind of caught me off guard. I don't know that anyone was like, yeah, I saw where this was going like, for sure. <laughs> right. you know? um, but uh, again, it's something that on the rewatch, like played a little bit better for me once I knew it was uh, expecting it. I thought it was a good tie into the, the old FBI, you know, radio show, things like that. So um, it, it worked for me better this time for sure. And Marty likes to see himself in his movies, you know, and he's better in his movies than Tarantino is in his <laughs> yes, movies. So like, I'll, I'll take, I'll take a Marty sighting. I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah. What did you think of the scene, Mark? I mean, I love it, but I, you know, I, you know, my TikTok. I did the one about him breaking the third wall or breaking the fourth wall and just kind of, mm-hmm. he does it so subtly in his later works. And even in this one, I mean, he's doing it literally now. He's just speaking to the audience saying, hey, this is what this story is about. And here's what was was omitted in previous attempts to the story. Maybe we can get a bit closer to the truth. Maybe as time progresses, humans can get closer and closer to an approximation of truth. That's, I think, the hope. Obviously, it's still going to be a deranged version, you know, through anyone's lens, even a European descendant's lens. But I think, I, I just, for, again, I love the comedic, I love the levity of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I love that he's taken this really heavy, it's like a really heavy eight course dinner. And then he just like gives you a little bit of a sorbet afterwards. He's like, yeah, all right, let's, yeah. let's keep it a bit light. And, yeah. and then he brings it back and then he brings it back. And that was the other time I cried was when he, when he says this was her, this was her obituary. There was no mention of the murder. It's, uh, what can I say? It's a director that knows exactly how to, work with the audience he knows exactly how to address them he's addressing people where they need to be addressed he's not talking Mm -hmm. down to them you know what i mean he's not a lot again a lesser director wouldn't even have the balls to do that ending yeah are you kidding me you're gonna have white people in a radio play do faking (laughs) the indigenous voice right and then you got someone selling cigarettes to you while you're telling the story for him to even be that oblique and say, oh man, it's just, I don't know. It, yeah. It's something that only a confident artist that knows what he's achieving and what he's not achieving mm-hmm. can do. And that's key. I don't know if, I don't know if a lot of directors have that. 
I don't think a lot of directors have that ability to know what they cannot know or cannot do. Mm-hmm. Scorsese always strikes me as someone who does. He, he's like, oh, look, I don't, maybe I, maybe maybe this will be looked upon in 30 years like the radio plays of the 1940s and 50s did. Maybe this will go down in history as a crappy vessel of entertainment. I don't know, but guess sure. what? I'm making an attempt. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, doing it. Absolutely. And it is yeah. a mea culpa. It, it could be considered a mea culpa. Maybe it is him just being like, I've, I've, I've screwed up, but allow me to do screw that. Allow me to screw up. And I think he's earned that. Even if you don't like this film, I think he's earned his place to tell these stories and the ways he's telling them. And yeah, give me another three and a half hours. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on, on all of those thoughts for sure. I think it is um, a, a deeply, conscious and, and wise decision on Scorsese's part to, to do what he does at the very, very end. Um, I'll do my true cinema first because we just talked about it. It's actually, um, it's kind of like a micro true cinema, but it is that moment where Molly does or does not uh, visit Ernest in the back of the courtroom mm-hmm. and, and asks, mm-hmm. have you told all the truths? And I know that's kind of, it's like kind of cheating because that's like the, that the, that's what we've been building to for almost three and a half hours is like this truth moment with Ernest and Molly and how he feels about the things that he's done. Um, I think if I'm, if I'm going to add anything to that, it is the conversation that um, Ernest has with King in prison where he does say like, my, my child has died. This has now affected me on a, on a deeply personal level. And, and I, I, I no longer can follow what you were going to do. Um, I, I will be working with the FBI and I'm going to do this. And this is where King is. He tells him like, it's a bad idea. Like I wouldn't do that if I were you. Like yeah. uh, you might want to rethink that. And uh, so I think kind of everything in the, in that zone is my true cinema, and it, and it feels mm. so good uh, building to that, and then getting that at the end that it, that something works so powerfully as it does, and is told in such um, a smart way with the dialogue between them and the and the facial interaction that that Ernest has with King and all of these things that I think work really really well. Um, Ben, what is your true cinema moment for the movie? I mean, we also just recently talked about it, but it's Plemons showing up. And I mean, it takes mm-hmm. two hours to get here, but I really enjoy where the story goes once the mm-hmm. Bureau of Investigations, I guess not quite yeah. federal <laughs> yet, but uh, once the BI shows up and starts, you know, working their way into this story, that's where it really picks up for me. And like we talked about that scene itself, very humorous, very funny. Um, so yeah, that's that's mine. What about you, Mark? What's your true cinema moment? There's so many. I, I love the scenes with Henry Rowan. I think oh, yeah. I think he should have been. I think he should be nominated for an Oscar. To be honest, William Bellew, who 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 is a Canadian actor or Indigenous actor, he. I mean, every scene he's in, when he's being pulled out of the bank because he can't even get out his own money, and then the scene where he is, you know, on that execution, it's just like, it's haunting. Um, yeah. but my okay but sorry my actual answer sorry that was my my second my actual answer is the <laughs> scene where the camera goes through the house of lizzie Q's, and it yeah. kind of does a 360 and you see for a brief moment the indigenous culture and the and the european descendants intermixing in a peaceful way and then it comes around back to lizzie Q into a close-up and then all of a sudden she opens her eyes and all she sees is that owl sitting there that yeah. to me was I got shivers. I was like, oh my God, like, yes. The owl is such an interesting symbol as an animal. Like, is it is it the illumination towards something great or is it like death? Is, that, is she seeing the death of her culture or is she seeing this potential future of a peaceful resolve? 
I mean, we all know that it was obviously the former, but in that moment, it's just Scorsese handles it with such grace, with such beauty, and yet it still remains haunting. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I can't believe we didn't talk about probably one of the most gorgeous scenes in the whole movie of just like and then it breaks out of that fight. Yeah. yeah, and then it breaks, and then then she like she blinks, she sees the owl, and all of a sudden it's just like boom, conflict. And again, how do you do that? How do you go from beautiful? peaceful serenity to like violent conflict so so quickly yeah uh okay well that's our that's our killers of the flower moon conversation so we did it in under three and a half hours i feel really really proud of us um we have one more thing to talk about here on the episode uh before we close out uh we are going to talk about the best director race uh Mm. now i think this is important when it comes to killers of the flower moon of course to, to scorsese someone who's been kind of um been a, a, a criminal omission from a lot of um, great works that, of course, he he has done. So right now, as of this time, as of recording, the five nominees that Variety has predicted for the 2024 Academy Awards are Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer, Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon, Alexander Payne for The Holdovers, Jonathan Glazer, The Zone of Interest, and Greta Gerwig for Barbie. We've got Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things at number six. Justine Triet, uh, Anatomy of a Fall at number seven. Michael Mann for Ferrari at, at eight. Bradley Cooper for Maestro at nine. And Cord Jefferson uh, for American Fiction at 10. Um, Mark, mm. I'll, I'll start with you. Give me the five that you think get nominated and then your who you actually think is going to win Best Director. Okay, so the five I think will get nominated, but I don't want them to get... I, not what I want and what I think will happen are two very different things. Okay. I think what you can we'll give us get both. nominated. I think Nolan will get nominated 100%. I think Scorsese will get nominated 100%. Glazer, I think he'll get it. Gerwig, 100%. Cooper, I think will get it. Let's um, fucking go, Mark. And, we and did here, it. Here's the thing. Mark. I, I think Maestro is great. I think Maestro is great. But it's funny because when you guys, you guys made a good point at the beginning, you guys like, they're like opposites, Scorsese and Cooper. And I totally agree. Because Oscars are kind of like, it's kind of like a courtship. If you really want one, like Cooper does, the girls or the person that you're in love with is like, get away from me. But if you're so laid back, like Scorsese, and you're like, I don't want anything to do with you. And the Oscars are like, well, then screw you. Like, I'm not yeah. going to give you a nomination. So I, it's like, but I know that Scorsese and Cooper will get a nominate. They, they, I'll put it this way. Maestro is a, it's exactly what the Oscars love great perform like some of the best performances of the year they love biopics they love anyone that gets into prosthetics they're like done mm-hmm. give it to mm-hmm. like yeah they love actor directors that's another thing they love like oh wow he acted and he directed um so he's gonna get nominated for sure and it was just like come on spielberg yes. produced it it's scorsese produced it didn't nominated. he scorsese produced it it's it's it'll get nominated the academy already loves love cooper. to hear it you know they love nominating um, cooper yeah. That's for sure. They do. They do. <laughs> yeah. They do. It's kind of like, like a, that. it's masochistic. He keeps on doing like mm-hmm. these Oscar films and they're like, nah, dog, we don't want not, it. Not it. Not it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anthemos might get nominated, but I honestly don't, I, I don't know. Cause like, I hope he does. Cause I think it is one of the, if not the best directed film of the year, as far as like visuals and storytelling and performances. Um, but I don't know if he'll get it. So I'd mm-hmm. say, like, the, did I say five? I think I said five. Cooper, yeah. Cooper, Glazer, Scorsese, Nolan, 
and Greta. Maybe Greta, yeah, Greta. For sure, Greta. Okay. In fact, I think Greta yeah. might even win. Who knows? Ooh, hard to say. I like that. I like that. Who who are your five, Ben? Uh, for want, I'm gonna go with want here. Okay, okay. This is your want. Nolan Scorsese, Gerwig. Those seem like locks and all deserving. I would like to see Yorgos get nominated as well. Mm-hmm. And then my wild card pick that isn't gonna happen, but I would love is Sean Durkin for the Iron Claw. Ooh. I would love to see him in oh, there. Okay. I, I know it's not going to happen, but I would love I would love to see that in there for sure. I like that. Uh who who do you think is actually going to win? Like who are you predicting right, like in I would a just real swap world? out Durkin for Jonathan Glazer. Okay. Like, I haven't seen Zone of Interest, but it just feels like it's, it's got that. Yeah. It's pretty good. Um yeah, you know, I think it is tough because I think this is the category for me that is the most uh, differentiated between like who I think will get nominated and who I want to get nominated. Yeah. Um, who I want to be nominated is, is Nolan Scorsese, um, Glazer. Uh, no, Nolan Scorsese, Gerwig. I want Bradley Cooper, obviously, uh, someone less Snoopy in the vestibule. Then <laughs> how, how would you not like award that with a directing? Uh, I love nominee. that you keep quoting a movie to me that I haven't seen. <laughs> I get zero reaction. Like, I have no try- idea what that means. I'm, I'm trying to inundate you with quotes so often that you're like, fuck, I find I have to watch this movie so I can understand what he's talking about. Um, the fifth that I would like is Justine Triette for Anatomy of a Fall. Of course, she did. I think um, she'll get nominated. She did take home either Critics' Choice or Golden Globe. I can't quite remember, um, but it was either. it was a big she win. Took the Golden um, Globe. Yeah, took the Golden Globe. But here's the problem that I have with that, and which kind of puts it in that in that heavily want category, is that I don't know if the Academy swaps out like a Gerwig or a Glazer for two other people like Cooper and Triette that are like on the bubble. Mm. I think. Maybe you get one. Maybe you get like Alexander Payne not making it and Cooper making it instead. Yeah. But like the Nolan Scorsese, Glazer, Gerwig, that seems like a four. That seems like a yeah. very core four for this category. So I don't think you get Triet and Cooper. I think you get one of them. I do think Cooper will be That'd nominated. Be yeah. Is he going to win? No, he's not going to win. I think Christopher Nolan's going to win. I think Nolan will win Best Picture as well. I don't think it'll be a split this year. Mark, where do you land on that in terms of like, a best picture, best director split. Do you think the Academy goes with that this year or do they I think it's, stick I to think one? It's going to be whichever takes director will take picture. And I, honestly, I do think that maybe not. I mean, look, they might want to give something to Greta and they mm. might want to give something to Nolan and they'd be like, Hey, look, you Barbie Heimer, they both get something like, and I could see that just on a, on a ratings level being good. Like, Whoa, all the people that went out for Barbie, they got their moment. All the people that went out to see Oppenheimer, they got their moment. The people that saw both, they both, they got two moments. So it's like a win win. Yeah. So I could see, honestly, this is what I foresee will happen. Mark my words. Gerwig takes director. Nolan oh. takes best picture. Okay. Wow. Like hey, even be, though I don't think Nolan, even though I don't think Nolan is a lesser director, I think Nolan directed the hell out of Oppenheimer. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's one of the best directed films of the last few years, to be honest. Um, but they, I, I don't know. But also Gerwig's, what, her second, third film? It's like they might not give it to someone that with that kind of... Yeah, it's hard to tell. They definitely yeah. won't give it to Scorsese. It's just not going to happen. It will not yeah. happen. That's tough, man. It's I'm tough lean- reality that we're living in. I hate that. I'm leaning towards Nolan, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it. 
<laughs> you get, get you talking enough and you'll start doing some tinkering. Yeah. Um, I, I respect that because that, that is what happens to me. Um, yeah, you know, I think Best Director will obviously be a very interesting race to watch. I agree with you. I think they're going to go director picture, picture um, as well and kind of stick them together. I think if Bradley Cooper gets nominated, and I know Ben will talk about this next week on the podcast when we're actually talking about poor things um, because we've already recorded that episode. Uh, but I think it might do more damage than than good. Um, I think it'll might it might send our boy into a into a hellscape of his own where um, we might end up just getting the Hayover four, which yes. I don't want. Cause I like my show quite a bit and I like oh, a star is born oh, quite a lot. No, Cooper's good. Cooper's good. He, he delivered man. Like that, that, that film is going to like Netflix loves it. It yeah. got all the people that it needed to get out. Like, let me put it this way. Netflix doesn't green light a film about Leonard Bernstein unless they know there's a preset audience that are no offense 60 plus i'm not insulting you ethan but 60 plus year olds because look i i used to work at a movie theater and guess what those movies they sold like hotcakes those films would sell the matinees like crazy the blue-haired crowd would go in they'd be like give me the maestro play it again let's do it again because it's leonard bernstein are you kidding you know people listen to leonard bernstein that aren't our age of course but i'm saying that that audience the people that are you know i'm not again i'm not trying to be ageist but it has yeah, yeah there's a core audience. There's a built-in audience for sure. Definitely, definitely core audience. And that's really Netflix is only only race or in the only horse in the uh, best picture race here, uh, which which I think is, is really you know, no interesting. Um, I think they, they kind of at, as of this moment, it is. They haven't had great luck, you know, Mark. They've they've been they've been missing out uh, occasionally on on winning best mm. pictures. Um, okay. That's it. We've done Killers of the Flower Moon, um, a podcast that I was truthfully quite nervous for because it is is such a masterwork. And um, Mm. I think there's so much to talk about and so much to cover. But I think we did it quite a wonderful job. Uh, Mark, do you have any like closing thoughts, anything that you didn't get the chance to say about the film that might have come come to you? Yeah, this is a good part one. I'm looking forward to the sequel where we have to talk <laughs> yeah. about it for another hour. <laughs> right? It's two yeah. parts, right? You told it's me. a yeah, two-parter yeah. no, for it's sure. Great. Yeah. I, I love I this film. I mean, it's it was so great to revisit with you guys because it made me think about it. It got my wheels spinning, and I was like, wow, it really has stayed with me. Like, the fact that I can recall some of these moments, it's yeah. really stuck with me. Same with Oppenheimer. Same with a lot of films this year. I feel like this year was great for cinema. Poor things mm. really stayed with me. Um, La Chimera by uh, Alicia Rorischer really stayed mm. with me. There's some works that I'm just like, past lives, I got to rewatch it. But I think you like, Ethan, you like past lives quite a bit, right? Love past lives. Yeah, it's Ben's favorite movie of 2023. Yeah. I don't want to take yeah, the I fame mean, here. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Oh, Ben, you, I mean, that third act is just like so, it's criminally well directed. It's so mm-hmm. good. It's so moving. Um, And I just remember walking out being like, I can't believe that's her first film. <laughs> it's that insane. Is insane. It's insane. <laughs> That is, yeah. cr- I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, forget about the fact that it's a great film. As a debut, it's insanely good. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's 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 intimidating how good it is. Yeah, but I don't know if she'll get nominated. She might get nominated. Whew. That'd, that'd be, be that'd be sweet. Uh, ben, any any closing thoughts on Killers of the Flower Moon? Do you like the book or the movie better? Can we get a definitive answer? Oh come on, Look. we know what Ben likes. Huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, but I do. I am glad that we rewatched this. Like I said, it kind of bumped up in my estimation since like seeing it again now that I know what I'm getting. So yeah, I'm glad we revisited it. It was, it was nice. I'm glad too. I think really what we've established is that I just, I need to make you rewatch films because when you rewatch <laughs> movies, you inevitably bump them up. You did the same with Oppenheimer. So like True. my job is just to be like, 
can I get you to watch this movie for a fourth time and then we'll really get your authentic thoughts on that. Half star at a time. We'll yeah. just keep it. Honestly, I know people that I know people that don't rewatch films. And I'm like, that's the only way to really appreciate things is like yeah. you gotta revisit them. Like they're like family, you know, you gotta see them once in a while. And and <laughs> yeah, when you exactly. do, you learn new things, you know. Like they they I'm I can't tell you how many times I've seen a film and then I'll watch it 10 years later, and I'm like, this movie is has a totally different meaning for me now. I'm like, yeah. Now that I'm old enough to understand some of these things, I'm like, this movie's totally different. 100%. But uh, I, I, I like encouraging rewatches, especially for films that you maybe didn't love. Like anyone yeah. can rewatch Goodfellas. Anyone can rewatch, uh, I don't know, Shawshank Redemption. But like to rewatch a film that maybe you didn't love, is it's I think it's important. Yeah, it's beneficial for sure. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for being on the pod, man. This was a a truly hey. wonderful conversation. Um, if People want to find more of you. Where can they find you at? I'm not giving away my address, Ethan. I told you. <laughs> Give me your social. I see all those criterions. <laughs> I want those criterions behind you. My, my, yeah, my, my sin number is. And, um, yeah, you can find me on the, on TikTok. I'm the at the third house, not the number, just the word the third house. Um, and if you want, you can go to my website, check out my work, www.marksira.com. And I also work with the young astronauts and that's www.theyoungastronauts.com. And yes. yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on here. Cause this was a great conversation and I just felt yeah. like pure bliss out talking about Scorsese <laughs> with you fine folks. Oh uh, yeah. I'm so glad that you could come on, man. Honestly, this is, this is great. Um, next week. We're doing, we're getting fantastical. We're going a little bit different direction. We're talking about Poor Things, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos' film from 2023. Um, it's our last guessing episode for guessing yeah. our Best Picture nominees. And after that, we've got the back six that we will know uh, what the nominees are officially. We have a um, Oscars nominations reaction pod coming out on January 23rd. Be on the lookout for that. Ben and I are putting in the fucking hours, man. We're waking up early. <laughs> Got my alarm set. I'm ready. The Academy was like, let's run it back. Let's go 5.30 a.m. Pacific for our announcement. <laughs> fucking psychotic. Is that I don't what know what we're doing. 5.30 a.m.? It's insane. Yeah. 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 8.30 Eastern, 5.30 Pacific. Well, why? So that means this I'm up at 5. I'm up at 5:30. Ben's gonna be up at 6:30. We're gonna pod sh- soon after that, and we're gonna yeah. we're gonna rip this pod out and let the people hear our. Well, you're thoughts. on the so, west coast. You're on you're on the west coast, Ethan. I am. Yeah, <laughs> brutal nice. out here. It's brutal, <laughs> and I don't know why they I don't know why they do that. Who knows? Um, but it's gonna be a fun pod, Ben. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, it's poor things is cool. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's gonna be fun to talk about. Great film. Yeah, Great it's gonna film. be good to talk about. We'll have coffee ready for the reaction of the <laughs> nominations. Um, but yeah, what awards do you guys think Killers of the Fire Moon is taking from the Academy Awards this year? And will it be Best Picture? I mean, I think it's in the contention, but Maybe. Oppenheimer is, you know, it's up there. It's going to be a hard one to be for sure. But let us know what you think. We're on Twitter and Instagram at 24 minutes of 824. You can also find us on YouTube where you can watch all of us talk about these movies. Subscribe, hit the bell, whatever. I don't even know what you do on YouTube anymore, but just do it, you know? Um, yeah, <laughs> Whatever that'd be, it is. That'd be awesome. So, yeah, thanks so much for your support. I am Ben Lawhorn. And I am Ethan Simi. I do like that money, sir. 